Hi everyone! Before we start the show, I wanted to ask that if you like what we're doing here, you might consider donating to keep it moving onward and upward. We have a Patreon at patreon.com backslash Hegelbon and a PayPal at paypal.me backslash Hegelbon. $5 at Patreon will get you bonus episodes, but even a dollar helps more than you can imagine because no cartridge is funded by listeners like you. Thank you. Cartridge Audio. My name's Trevor Strunk, Hagelmon on Twitter, and with me is Twitter user at Dog in Hoodie, uh, who is not just a Twitter user, but also an indie uh, indie game dev, uh, VR uh, dev, uh, game aficionado. Has a ton of things to talk with us about today. Um, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. So uh, you wanted to come on today to talk about a lot of stuff. So like one of the things I'm super interested in talking to you about is, of course, uh, VR dev and like, you know, being an indie game dev. Uh, we were talking about you're sort of you're in Florida. You're in like a, an area that's not exactly known for for game development. So that's kind of like an interesting, interesting thing. And then like this game you're working on now, this horror game, this horror VR game uh, that you recently, uh, you know, displayed um had available for people to play uh all that stuff i definitely want to talk about but you also want to talk about uh i mean basically you know this is this is always a dangerous topic uh in video games today but uh, you want to talk about a little bit uh video games and uh and media right yeah 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 and and part of the way that we look at video games and that affects how they're how they're criticized how they're reviewed and ultimately whether or not people leave good reviews on them on steam cool which is the most important thing yeah, I mean it's huge. I've, I've actually—it is actually really important. I said that with a tinge of irony, but it is actually very important. And I think about it a lot. Like, no, it's super important. I mean, I've actually—I've—I've I've fallen into that where I, you know, even even with all the self-ironizing I do about the the reviews on Steam, I'll I'll go on and if there's a new game I'm interested in, I'll look at it and I'll say, yeah, mostly positive or like mixed. Like, no thanks. I'm not gonna. I'm yeah, not gonna bother yeah. with it. Which like is a weird trap that i thought i'd never fall into but totally did um it's very tempting when you're starting off uh which i am i don't i don't want to claim any expertise on this but it's very tempting (laughs) to make things that are kind of slow burns that you uh will get excited about kind of as you're towards the end of playing them which means that if the first wave of people that hit your game don't get it Mm -hmm. uh then it just has mixed reviews for the next wave of people yeah exactly like that's um that ended up being that way for um you know, it ended up being that way for uh, uh, No Man's Sky for a lot of reasons, but I mean, No Man's Sky is a good a good example of that. And then, um, I mean, there's plenty of games that like just had a weird first act or a weird first sort of like moment, or they got patched, and it's just like 
very difficult for them to get over the hump in terms of mixed reviews. Yeah, I was actually uh, I was talking to some people that I was demoing next to at uh, at at DreamHack Atlanta uh, about a week ago, where they had marketed their game a little bit too early, mm-hmm. um, before they were able to get the first like wave of patches out. Uh, this was an i uh, this was I, I think it was an iPhone game. It was a mobile game. Okay. Um, and on the mobile market, of course, reviews are harsh. Yes, so. of course. Yeah, I mean, you're you're talking even harsher than Steam because they're typed out mostly on an iPhone, so people are known for their brevity. Yeah, and uh, and it's it's a pretty big influence on whether or not people you know will wind up buying. Um, and so they made a VR game so that they could demo it at DreamHack, mm-hmm. so that they could tell people to leave good reviews after they had played the VR version. Oh man. Um. Which, That's rough. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, which is a, a, a kind of a hilarious strategy, and it, it worked out for them, I think. I mean, I saw a lot of people on their phones, so. Nice. Well, I mean, you're talking to a sympathetic audience, I guess, which is nice. Uh, you can count on other yeah, creators yeah. to understand your, your pain a little bit, I guess. Yeah, um, I found it was a very mixed bag at, uh, at DreamHack is in terms of who you demoed to. There was a lot of people that had never played VR, uh, a lot of people that barely played games, um, wow. a lot of pro players like uh, towards the end of the day would or pro players and like their teams mm-hmm. and coaches and things that would want to try out the game. Um, hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. I, why, why were the, you mind me asking, why do you think the pro players were there? I believe it was dream hack. Oh, 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 sorry, 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 sorry. Of course. Of yeah. Course. <laughs> Ugh. I was thinking um, about, I was just thinking about the, the dev end of it. And I was like, why were they there? Why were they playing like prototype games? Of course, yeah, like they were there for different reasons than they were going through. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, there was an expo there, and I don't think they intended to have uh, prototype games there, mm-hmm. but we managed to kind of show up uh, <laughs> when we, we, we managed to make a contact uh, while they still had booths to fill. So nice. That was very that was very lucky. I anyone anyone that's kind of learning about networking and games, I think. Don't ever not talk to somebody. Uh, if you see a person, talk to them. <laughs> if they look like they work for something, talk to them. It's uh, You never know how desperate they are for... Yeah. Yeah. All right, that actually sounds really bad. No, I mean, you're you're not wrong. I've like... I mean, not that not that it's always worked out for me, but like, you know, I've asked... I I sent a tweet to Swery's, Swery65's Twitter account asking if he'd be on the show. So like, you know, the, the sort of level of audacity you have seems to be in this in this sort of realm like equal to mm-hmm. your success <laughs> yeah yeah um i think it's it's kind of a mistake to be like obviously don't be annoying but mm. if you're a dev sometimes people are just waiting for a dev to talk to them you know hmm. so that's interesting i mean of course like you know from my perspective the devs are the ones who have the the rare skills right like the you, you guys can actually make the stuff come to life um but I'm sure from your perspective, it seems like there are so many devs out there. Um, or maybe I should ask that question. Do you feel like you're kind of in a, you feel like you're sort of like in a sea of other devs or is it sort of a, a smaller pool? Uh, I absolutely feel like that. And okay. I don't know how true it is, but, I, you know, Twitter doesn't help when you go on Twitter and, <laughs> no. you know, you, you've been working on an AI routine for like a month and then you go on and somebody's made a 3D game engine in Pico 8, like, which is I don't know if you know what Pico 8 is, but it's a very restrictive 2D engine uh, hmm. that basically has uh, I think 14 colors built in, and it's like a 300 by 300 screen. 
and you have to code everything in like one file in Lua, I think. Wow. I haven't used it, but That's it's very... Brutal. Yeah, and so people will make 3D engines in this game. <laughs> Jeez. Um, that's just an example of like something that you go on Twitter, you see somebody who's just made something amazing. And that's kind of the life of like every developer is you'll see something that's either you could never have had the technical skills to make it or you aren't creative enough to have thought of it. And right. it's as beautiful as it is to have a ton of creatives that you follow. Um, it can also be very demoralizing if you're trying to work on something. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's like, that's like a classic sort of uh, artist dilemma, especially in like the age of, social media i mean there's so many talented people who are just sharing their work it's it's deeply uh i don't know it's 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 ambivalent yeah yeah um and then as you get into like the middle development period of your game and it starts to become a real thing um so you have this kind of in the concept phase you're very lofty you're very excited about what it can be and then once it starts to become a real thing you see all the compromises that you've had to make and um it can be a very like crushing experience and then, of course, your next idea is always like on the back of your mind. <laughs> hmm, yeah, of course, because like you're thinking, well, I'll just, I'll just uh, scrap this and go to my next thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's part of what I wanted to talk about was um, the way that Steam reviews uh, have a have a huge influence on like the development process now in a way that didn't exist in the past. Yeah, let's go into it. Um, so you mentioned No Man's Sky earlier, and I, I think that's a great example of uh, No Man's Sky. When it came out, they made a lot of promises. Of course, I, I, I say they uh, really a lot of promises were made. Is what I'll say. Um, <laughs> a lot of promises from the de- yeah, <laughs> but yeah, where the promises yeah. came from is up to debate, right? Right, right, right. Um, a lot of promises were made about what the game could actually be, and uh, having videos of that that were being shown off doesn't really help mm-hmm. sure um i think people are so used to seeing the the little disclaimer that says like this isn't final footage or whatever but you know people people had something they expected and that wasn't met and then that's a problem so how do you how do you fix that um and what hello games kind of did uh they changed a lot of things that people were asking for particularly in in steam reviews and that didn't necessarily make their game better. Right. It brought them a little bit closer in a hackier and a hacky kind of way to what they had promised. Um, but it didn't actually. If you look at what they actually released, there were ways that they could have improved it um, and made it better for what it was. It's not like it's it's sort of a common like artistic problem too. Like you know, the audience will ask for something, and uh, it's like the um, uh, there's a Simpsons episode where. Uh, um, I don't know if you might be too young to be super into the Simpsons, but, uh, <laughs> I'm pretty into the Simpsons. Okay, good. So there's the, the episode where Rogers Myers senior, uh, pulls together like a focus group of kids. It's the, it's the, um, I think it's the episode where they get, um, where they bring in Poochie. Um, and it, but it's the cold open is they're in a mall and some guy takes Bart and Lisa over to a, a focus group. Um, and they're asking, they're asking him like, okay, so what would you want Itchy and Scratchy to do? And, and, you know, they say, how many of you want Itchy and Scratchy to be like real down to earth and deal with your problems? And everyone goes like, yeah, that'd be great. And then they go, and how many of you want Itchy and Scratchy to go on crazy outer space adventures that have nothing to do with you at all? And then everyone goes, Ooh, that'd be cool. I'd like that. And, uh, Roger Myers senior, uh, turns off the two way glass and says like, you kids don't know what you want. And that's why you're kids. 
and it's it's in a way it's like you want to say that about consumers like it's you know you don't know what you want like the the art that hits you isn't art that you asked for it's art that you like enjoy it's art that you didn't expect to hit you in this way like very rarely do we go out of our way to like you know very rarely do we go to something thinking like this art will really impact me and then leave thinking like yep i was right um most of the time it's unexpected and so like if you're catering to your audience that way you're very rarely going to have like a truly successful piece. You'll have something that they yeah. find agreeable, but that might not be interesting to them at all. Well, it's it's probably impossible. If it's not impossible, it's very, very difficult to get a second first impression. <laughs> yeah. um, Definitely. But you can you can make your game better with patches for sure, but you want to focus on not the people that hate your game, right? Um, yeah, and there seems to be like, there seems to be this patching problem where like, people get cynical about them now too where like if a game comes out and it's not perfect they say like well (laughs) classic they're gonna patch it later and we had to pay Uh all this money for this incomplete project yeah yeah and that's kind of i think people are and and you know in the old paradigm that they're comparing this to you had larger teams with bigger budgets right uh something i think about a lot uh we're we're working on a survival horror game and what that means is that our control scheme is very clunky and VR controls, believe it or not, are something that's heavily debated among consumers right now, <laughs> particularly the backseat developer kind of consumer, okay. which I, I, this sounds very anti-consumer. I, my, my politics are very simple. I'm, I'm pro consumer and pro gamer. Um, <laughs> Everyone, we have Ian Michael, Ch- <laughs> Ian Miles Chong here on the podcast. Um, um, no, but like I, I, I value the input, but the, there is a very uh, there's a criticism that that we keep seeing, uh, and we're a, a two person team, so mm-hmm. this is kind of like personal when we talk about it. It's people really don't like when your game doesn't have the option to move around with a joystick. Okay. Which we've tried. For one, we can't play test it, and we are most of the play testing in this game. Um, we can't play test it because we both get motion sick. Interesting. Uh. We also don't like it because it feels too free mm-hmm. when a survival horror game is supposed to make you feel restricted. We have a, a sort of short dash teleport system, mm-hmm. and we think it accomplishes what we want really well. But I know, and I know this from demoing it as well, people think that we just haven't thought of artificial locomotion. Artificial locomotion is when you move around with a joystick. Okay. Um which means that for a period of time when you're moving, your your mind perceives your body moving, but your inner ear isn't telling your body that it's moving. So you immediately assume that you've been poisoned. Most people assume most people's brains assume that they've been poisoned. And that's why um, you get motion sick. Yeah, and they try to they try to vomit. <laughs> so you get more motion sick when you actually have joystick control, is what you're saying. As opposed yes, to sort yes. of like interesting. I wouldn't have expected that. Yeah, um, that's why there's so many games that, that you teleport in. Hmm. I never, I've never heard that. That's really interesting. So why do people want the joystick control then? Uh, because there are people that just don't get motion sick. Oh, sure. And they like to feel that they've been accommodated for. And I, I, I see it, right? Uh, there are games where it doesn't affect anything to have it that way. But... I'll give you an example. Resident Evil. <laughs> when mm-hmm. Resident Evil came out, Steam reviews weren't a thing. So people weren't asking for an FPS controller. <laughs> uh, there was no Steam review for that game 
If it came out now, I know there would be at least one Steam review that said, I want to be able to control this in first person. This is very oh, hard. Absolutely. Well, I remember people saying, like, the. I remember thinking myself that the control scheme was very clunky and not even putting it together that, like, yeah, okay, that's part of the scary part of the game. Like, it's it's hard to move fluidly. They're playing around with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's just our kind of specific scenario here. Hmm. Um, I can tell you how it affects our process, which yeah, is please. that it, 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 well, it just constantly has us losing faith in, in a lot of, and <laughs> <laughs> really a lot of what, of what we're working on. Well, I mean, I don't want to sound like that, but I can imagine releasing a game like Darkest Dungeon. Have you played Darkest Dungeon? Uh, I, I, I have it and I have friends who've played it and someone gifted it to me, but around Christmas, one of my, one of my buddies online, but I haven't gotten a chance to play it, but it seems really cool. Seems totally yeah, so up my alley. If you've uh, if you've read much about it, you would you'll you'll know that it's very unforgiving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, the permadeath uh, mechanic in there is brutal, and also it plays around with a lot with uh, with like mental status, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can you can have party members that become expensive liabilities, and you have to decide whether or not to get rid of them or to treat them or whatever. Right. Um, and that's that's really cool. So that game isn't very uh, isn't as popular as it could be because of that and one of the biggest pitches that they get is to make it easier and they've responded to that by doing things that actually in a lot of ways make the game harder but force you to move <laughs> faster okay and it's it's actually a very intelligent series of changes that they've made um that that alter the the gameplay loop interesting uh, to make it more to make it more engaging and make it feel less like a grind and create more variation that's their solution to people saying that the game was too hard it wasn't actually to make it easier and they have released a, a mode that's shorter but not necessarily easier yeah actually it's funny i was talking about this actually probably when was that maybe like a night ago uh two nights ago on another uh, recording which i there's no real order at this point to when I put these out, so maybe those will come first, uh-huh. maybe it won't. Um, but in the case, it doesn't. Uh, I was talking about Dark Souls uh, with a guest, and um, they were saying, like, people complain about they're not, or, like, uh, even critics will say, like, well, why isn't there an easy mode? Like, you could get more people interested in this game. Um, and, you know, we were both kind of in agreement that the whole point of the game is about not having an easy mode. Like, that's actually part of, like, the the premise behind it it's not necessarily about making you feel bad or like making you feel like you're less of a gamer or whatever like that's not the point the point is that it's it's very difficult and like that difficulty impacts the narrative and i think you're right like darkest dungeon would be sort of like i mean what's the point of a game like that if it's not if it's not punishing or it's not like if there's not permadeath or it makes you feel loss or it makes you feel frustration like that's kind of the that seems to be like the general idea of the game yeah 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 and 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 because it's a game that I like a lot and I really love playing it, um, mm-hmm. I obviously don't want to see it changed <laughs> to appeal to a broader audience. Sure. Uh, and, I, and I'll, you know, that's not a special. Like a lot of people feel that way about games that they like. Um, I feel a lot like. Uh, okay, so so here's something I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk about the the futurism thing um right we were so, talking about this beforehand yeah yeah, yeah. the the idea of yes. like the uh, the platonic game yeah so yeah so if, if we look at uh if we look at film there is no uh all right so so let's start with this when i like i'm, I'm 20 years old right 
Okay. Which means that my my parents, what video games were to them is a totally different thing than what it is to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my dad got to see he got to see the transition from Doom to Half Life, uh, and then into some of the, like the games we have now, like uh, Prey or Dark Souls or whatever. Sure. sure. Um, and those are some pretty big leaps in a very short amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I saw those leaps, too. I, I'm younger than your dad. I Unless your dad had you very young, I'm younger than your dad. But uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I also, like, you know, I can remember playing Doom as a shareware game. And I can remember then, like, seeing Half-Life come out and then seeing Half-Life 2 come out. And then, yeah, I mean, like, these progressions were, I mean, rapid fire. I don't know if you've seen the video of the, the tech demo, the E3 tech demo, I think in 2003. Of, uh, of Half-Life 2 when they're showing off the physics and the, oh, the shaders no. and it's oh it's a it's a brilliant video it makes me so excited um, <laughs> it really this, was an amazing game I, it yeah, just, yeah. It, it's hard to it's hard to overstate how like how game-changing that was yeah it's so exciting for me to see the the phase where they had the systems ready and then they just had to work on the narrative mm-hmm. that's that's a very exciting point for me <laughs> I bet um, as a dev, yeah, it's kind of the fun part for you. Yeah, so so seeing the, because because yeah, the early development is kind of a pain when you mm-hmm. are building all of the things that you're going to use, um, like for the game that I'm working on, there's an AI system that, uh, you know, Unity doesn't natively have things like behavior trees or, uh, you know, anything like that, um, so you have to code those things in. Okay. And so, for a large part of this game's development, I wasn't getting new levels or new content. It was just this uh, this one thing. Ugh. And now I've I've built it in such a way that I have an editor for it, and I can be you know creating AI nodes and and working on it. And within I've built it for me, so it's very comfortable, and I can very quickly make a level with a uh, with an AI in it, and then. If that's not working, I can prototype another one in like an hour. Um, it's yeah. very, it's very great to get past that initial point. And so seeing that with Half Life, where it's like they have monsters, they have uh, zombies that can walk at you and <laughs> and hit you, and they have physics, and you can float in water, and uh, you know physics props can fall down and dynamically interact with each other, and then you can use physics props against enemies and all these systems are exposed to each other and now it just comes down to making levels and deciding to have guards down here and putting a dumpster up here and oh, explosives next to it. must be so much it. fun at that point. Yeah, that's but, really the great part. I mean, they basically, I mean, that's basically Gary's mod. That's like basically like, <laughs> you know, they sell that now. <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, were, so anyway... Yeah, I was gonna say like you're interested, you're interested in that, but then you're also interested in the way that that because that's like a double-edged sword, right? That that Half-Life demo or that Half-Life Two demo, where like that feeling that people get even just by watching the demo, this idea that this game is gonna be something like a game changer, and then of course Half-Life Two is a game changer, like it's it's a really really big deal. Um, but we want that feeling every time we see a new game, right? And and you describe this when we were off air, you describe this as like a futurism or or a sort of futurist. Uh, stance, which I think is like, is actually like pretty interesting, because of course, like futurism for those who don't know, um, you know, the twenties and thirties leading up to, uh, you know, the the sort of like World War Two, but particularly like leading up to the Nazi Party, futurism was this sort of like international um, appreciation, let's say, 
for the aesthetics of war, uh, you know, lovingly describing war machines, planes, you know, basically aestheticizing death and methods of delivery for death. Um, and obviously that doesn't quite line up with video games, uh, but it does sort of like indicate that like, you know, we're just as willing to fetishize or aestheticize these tech demos as we are like the games themselves, right? Yes. Yes, that's a, an excellent way of putting it. Basically, the way that I define futurism uh, in, in video games, and I'm sure that other people have talked about this. Uh, there's a, actually a Waypoint article that I want to talk about later that covers a lot yeah. of this. Um, but the way that I see it is having this very optimistic image of your version of what the future is going to look like. Um, and then tending all of your criticisms and uh, and appreciations within within video games, in this case specifically... Um, tending all of your your beliefs about it towards that ideal future, mm-hmm. and you can uh, you can kind of spot this in a lot of how we look at games. So with with like film or music or whatever, you don't have this ideal of a final point in evolution. Okay, I, I think film probably had that towards the beginning when you know oh now we have sound and now we have color and whatever. But Absolutely, right, yeah. History of yeah. films full of that, especially at the very beginning. You know, you, you talk about like, I mean, there are many moments where the the idea is that it can't be a serious art, so like it's ultimately just like parlor tricks. And there's questions about okay, do we use it to tell stories? Is that moral? And yeah, no, all those questions. Um, you think about like the, you know, I won't bore anyone with it, but like history of the novel is that way, and the history of drama is that way, and it every every sort of art form deals with this early on. This idea of like we have to get to the perfect thing of this before it kind of gives that up and grows up. Yeah, exactly. So right now it feels like uh, the art of video games is kind of inextricably linked with the tech of video games. Mm. And of course, you know, a lot of developers don't really see it that way. Uh, The tech is whatever I have, and then I'm working within that artistically. Um, So... So I'm sure it was like that in film for a while, but today you can watch a film without um, without comparing it to the platonic ideal of a film that you've kind of built in your head. Sure. Um, if you look at uh, Dunkirk, just came out. There's a ton of World War II movies. But really, this- I, I, I've never heard of them before. Is this, <laughs> I, I was under the impression this was the first one. <laughs> um, I think they were making World War II movies while World War II was still happening. I think, <laughs> yeah. well, I think while the bodies were still warm. Honestly, I can't imagine a time before World War II because I can't imagine a time where there weren't World War II movies. Um, but we can still, you know, Dunkirk can still come out um, because we want to see how Christopher Nolan does it. Makes sense. Yeah, of course. Uh. So, yeah, you watch a movie and it's just that movie. You aren't comparing it to a perfect version of itself that all films will someday be. Um, and even in music, we have an idea that, that something can sound futuristic or avant-garde. Um, that's how I would you know describe like Flying Lotus or, or Amon Tobin or whatever. But mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's, it's great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But within that. If you, the future there is kind of just an aesthetic you don't imagine it as an ideal of what all music will one day be yeah i mean it's it's a, 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 a sort of philosophical term for it is is uh, telos or teleology like the the idea of a telos is is both purpose like the um 
the talos of a spoon is to eat things with it, for instance. Uh, but of course, metaphysically, talos implies ending as well, um, which is to say, like the meaning of a thing, the purpose of a thing also constitutes its end point. Like you know, music. If there's a talos to music, then like once you write the perfect album, it's also the last album, right? Um, and I think most you know philosophers of music at this point would argue that yeah, like that's probably not or estheticians would argue that yeah it's probably not actually the way music works no one's actually trying to write the the album to end all albums yes that is perfect actually that's exactly what i'm talking about um if you look at all of like the battle royale games that we have right now uh you have h1z1 uh i think daisy uh player no battlegrounds islands of nine um there's all of these people working on battle royale games that they want to play. <laughs> right. That's really how a lot of these things are conceived. It's just, I want it to be this slightly different thing. Oh well, um, yeah. And I mean like player unknown, I mean, you're, you're almost, you're almost looking at like literally that where it's like, yeah, I, I like H1Z1. I wish I could do this with it. And then it becomes a massively successful game. Yes, exactly. Uh, and you could say that these are better than, some of the ones that came before them mm-hmm. but they're not at this point they're not pushing towards some platonic ideal of the one perfect one that's going to knock all the other ones out of the park it's just a genre now right and like you know i uh, for a while i've been thinking about um you know battlegrounds as this really interesting uh version of that genre where the the point isn't to attack but the actual sort of like tension and mechanic of the game is waiting is patience is is actually playing defense which is a really you know surprising and interesting thing in a uh in a melee in a sort of like battle royale game um but of course you can imagine games that do the opposite where it's all offense right um you know looser looser aiming uh more you know more guns around uh, better health all of a sudden you have like an offense version um so yeah no i mean it's just like it's it's tweaks it's like it's all about preference at that point. It's not about kind of leading towards an ultimate end. Yeah, it's it, at this point, the difference between um, a game like H1Z1 and Islands of Nine, which is a, which is a first-person uh, battle royale game. It's an alpha right now. Um, they just want to be different games. They're not trying to... I mean, obviously, in a business sense, they're trying to compete with each other. Yeah, but right. they're not... They're, neither one is going to end the other one. Um, <laughs> right, sure. <laughs> because because the actual industry is not a battle royale game. Yeah, and and and, and nor would they want it to be, of course, because like you know you you get into a, you could think about like other genre games. I mean, this is something I was talking about on the show with Dark Souls, the idea of Dark Souls likes, or you know you think about open world games. Um, you you sort of say that term, and all of a sudden people remember other games they've played and enjoyed and want to buy your game. Like the market feeds off of itself at the same point. So of course they don't want it to be like a battle royale in the market either. <laughs> um, and I, and something I I kind of see is that the the way that video games have moved isn't in a isn't in a single forward direction. It's kind of whichever way trends will take it. Okay. Um. And the reason why I say that is, at the beginning of every medium, of course, there is a point where each game is going to be better than the last. Uh, not literally, right? Mm-hmm. But every year, engines will get better, and will will things will keep uh, getting better so much that you can spot these generations. Yeah, um, absolutely. But System Shock Two even is still 
is still fun as hell. Like, play it. Mm-hmm. Um, Everyone plays System Shock too. Yes, it's, it's, it's on GOG. <laughs> it's it's cheap. I yeah, think it might even be on Steam now. I'm not. I don't. I'm not entirely it is, sure. It, yeah, it is on Steam. Okay, um, even easier. And to I I think, and I haven't I haven't written any of this. Uh, I plan to at some point when I'm not so busy, but. Uh, I feel like I feel like a lot of this is getting hashed out, kind of at the moment, and mm-hmm. I think one one way to sum up the thesis of it is that we are stagnating, but that's fine. That's really good, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we're stagnating, but good, actually. Um, <laughs> so if you're if you're talking to an AI programmer, um, like this is this is just one example. 90% of the examples that they'll give you about what they're doing are going to involve either Thief 2, Half-Life 1, Halo, Combat Evolved, or Fear. Okay. Um, and all of those games came out before 2005. Yeah, yeah, right, of course. So I don't think that game developers are looking at it in the in the futurist terms because they're, for one, obsessed with the games of the past that inspired them. They're not trying to one-up those. They're mostly trying to emulate them or bring them to a modern engine um, or just kind of riff on them a little bit, but it's not a it's not a dead forward thing, the way that the uh, that reviews look at it, and and that's I'm introducing all of this stuff because I want to talk about reviews and then I want to talk about how it works in the kind of microcosm of VR. I think it sounds a little bit meandering right now. But. Not at all. No, no. I think I you know I think there's like an easy bridge here to reviews because of course where you're talking about is this is this like classic problem of um artists versus critics in a way right where like in in some ways it's a little different because you think about like critics of say i don't know like modern art or something like that um you're talking about people who are sort of like who have different um different outcomes in mind than people who write video game reviews right like people who write video game reviews one of the things that's at their core and like one of the reasons why like you know, I write video game reviews in a sense, but not really typical ones. It's because, like, I don't really care at the end. I'm writing them from literary critical perspective, so I don't care at the end if you decide, like, you want to buy the game or not. Like, that's totally not my interest. Whereas, like, most reviewers, it's like, yeah, like, part of it is, should you buy this game? Or is this game, like, worth your money or worth your time? Right? Like, that's sort of, like, the ultimate thing that reviewers have to say. And, like, what is worth the reviewer's time versus what the devs are trying to do, right? Those two things can come to, to odds. And, like, I get your your example of, like, yeah, we're, at, we're stagnating, but that's fine from a developer perspective where you're like, yeah, I can tweak little things. Like, I can keep making the world bigger or more interesting or something without having to reinvent the wheel every time. Of course you'd love that. And, of course, like, anyone would love that. That's, like, that's great. It means you can have, you know the witcher three instead of in like three years instead of 15 years or something in like development hell forever um you know it's it 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 totally makes sense but of course like as you as i imagine you're gonna go into now reviewers don't necessarily see that the same way right speaking of development hell (laughs) pray pray that was in development hell yes with via pray 2 yes yeah pray 2 is in development hell awkward segue into prey 2017 which i understand that you have played yeah uh yeah i i I almost i mean i could go back and get a couple of different endings but i basically 100 percent did that one played quite a bit Uh, of it it is yeah i need to go back and play it more 
Um, I played the hell out of my first run through it, and I it, I loved it, right? Because I grew up with the the immersive sims and the FPS games. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a little bit late to the party on them. Um, I don't want to claim that <laughs> I don't want to claim that I'm 20 years old, but I also get to have been playing video games when System Shock 2 came out. No, but um, you were playing SimCity as like a as like an embryo, <laughs> like a, a concept. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I I grew up playing those those sorts of immersive sim games, which means it was really exciting to see a game that is about systems and it's about exploration but not in a superficial sense in a in a very real sense of accomplishment when you get to somewhere yeah um and and the 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 world that it fleshes out is beautiful um and i know that you've talked about all of this so so what i want to talk about specifically is when we were talking about um how there's so many world war ii movies right right but you want to see how christopher nolan does a world war ii movie you want to see how uh quentin tarantino are you probably don't want to see that but uh, uh you, you know i guess see... i'd watch it sure <laughs> well <laughs> it's the glorious bastards yeah, yeah, of yeah. uh and you want to see how uh steven spielberg or whoever like you you're fine with watching another world war ii movie even though it's going to cover almost all of the same ground but you're willing to watch another one because of who's making it I mean, take superhero movies too. It's like it's like the even even a more sort of reductio ad absurdum, insofar as like people will watch multiple Spider-Man movies. People will watch multiple like these movies that'll go over the origin story again and again, like Batman movies or whatever. Like, and I'm I'm you know I've gone to see Spider-Man and Batman movies. I'm not trying to to be a snob about it. People, including myself, will go see them. Um, yeah, they're they're lots of fun, and like people want to go see them to see what the new take is on it. It's not. It, even if it's almost literally the exact same story. Yes. So, then why do we have headlines from Wired? <laughs> I see, it feels like a straw man anytime I cite Wired. <laughs> Please don't cite Wired. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. All right. Prey Review, a jarring mixtape of other games. Hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, that article I only highlighted because it was funny, so we'll go back to it. Prey Review... <laughs> This is for the independent. Prey review, discovering the familiar. Um, uh, there was another one from the Guardian that was. Oh I yeah, you linked it, it to me later, where it was like it. It sort of it didn't do enough new or something along those lines. Oh no no no! This is the most brutal one. The Guardian, Prey review, sci-fi shooter mashup is less than some of its parts. This person gave it uh, three stars. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. That's brutal. Um, and I'm not going to try and conflate these to the entire reception of Prey. I, I heard a lot of this when Prey came out, and I have heard a lot of people cite it for the reason why Prey, why they didn't buy Prey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've actually heard the same thing. And actually, I remember I remember asking people on Twitter, I was like, hey, like, would you guys want me to get Prey and play it like as soon as I can? Is that something people would be interested in? Most people were like, eh, I don't know. It's getting kind of weird reviews. I'm not sure you'd really enjoy it. Um, and then after it came out, like where people were sort of like realizing that it was a good game was when it sort of seemed to shift a little bit, but you'd still hear people say like, yeah, I read bad reviews to begin with. I guess I'll check it out. I think because of some, some circumstances that it hit, one of these is the futurism thing. Another one is, uh, and this is related is, uh, that Prey 2, people were very excited about it because it was a very overscoped game that mm-hmm, promised, sure. that promised a lot. It was promising to be like the next mass effect. Um, <laughs> the next step from mass effect right so 
people, for one, thought that Prey 2 had to not get made so that this could get made, which is just simply not the case. Prey 2 not getting made is the reason why this is named Prey. Yeah, that's right, exactly. <laughs> that's <not> literally it. <laughs> I've, read, I've read the history of Prey 2 in development, and it is it is not pretty. Yeah. <laughs> Prey 2 is never getting made, not with, with this game or without it. Yeah, that was indefinite development hell. And then uh, this is more of like a, a problem with you know the publisher ecosystem um is that prey is only called prey and only carries the baggage of the previous games because bethesda wanted to keep the ip and and so they had arcane was working on something and now arcane made made something now it's called prey but (laughs) when they were prototyping this it was never intended to be called prey um so yeah, that's that's one of the things that hit the reviews really bad was that people were very excited about Prey Two because it promised so much. Um, and this wasn't Prey Two. Like but, I actually remember reading early reviews on Steam where they were like, oh, "It's not Prey Two. and like I didn't know the history then, and I was like, "What are they talking about? This doesn't make any sense." And then was I was Prey I did One my as research. legendary as no as Prey, people make it out to be. No, no, I've actually never played Prey One. It's vaporware now. I, I got a um, I. I have it I, I found it and got it when i was um doing the prey podcast and then just didn't play it apparently it's fine like from what my, the, the guy I had on had played both preys um apparently prey is just a totally serviceable fps uh the only sort of interesting thing it does is it has like weird root like the, the architecture of the spaceship is interesting apparently um and it uses sort of like portal technology before portal used it um which is cool but um it i don't know like the plot sounds bad you play as like a native american guy and you use like you know wind magic and stuff like that it's real kind of like openly racist <laughs> it's like it's sort of like <laughs> it's it's not a perfect game in any way like it's not a game it's kind of like one of those weird xbox one xbox 360 games where you're like oh yeah like or like pc games where you're like oh yeah like that was a weird game maybe there's some potential there I don't think it's anything that you'd like you'd mark down and say like that was a that was a a moment that should have gotten a lot more attention. It's not let me say this, it's not um oh what's that game called? It's not Deadly Premonition. That's okay. what I'd say. Yeah, Prey Prey 2 just seemed like a very bloated, very overscoped game that yeah. it it <laughs> I don't want to say this, but it it read to me like somebody that doesn't make games pitching a game to me. Okay, sure. It, it felt like, like, uh, I don't know. Anyway, um, <laughs> I, say it, no it felt like, I so, it felt like something that, yeah, it felt like something that you, you can hear about and you know, it's not going to get made. Yeah. Um, right. But then again, if you described half-life to me, right? Like I probably would, I would probably say the same thing. <laughs> I guess that's true. I guess that, yeah, that's a good point. But I, again, like you, you sort of like, that's like novels work the same way if you if you talk to people who like hear novel pitches or agents or whatever um and you sort of like they could probably give you an account of like oh yeah this is a book that it's like it's not going to be this good or it's never going to get written um but then again those pitches look like i don't know look like you know the greatest books that we have currently like you can't go ahead and pitch like you know no one would listen to you if you pitched moby dick right but it did get written um you just don't pitch a masterpiece, basically. You pitch something that you could accomplish. Um, okay, so I'm going to read a bit of this Guardian article. Yeah. Um, this is 
Prey review, sci-fi shooter mashup is less than the sum of its parts. Nearly everything good about Prey is pulled from a game released in the decade before it. Well, four other games to be exact. As Morgan Yu, you are thrust into the aftermath of a failed research project with only a wrench for projection, just like Jack and Bioshock. Okay. The desolate ruined space station brings back memories of dead space, and yeah. the experimental gameplay takes cues from Dishonored, which was also developed by Franco US Studio Arcane. That's now, certainly if, true. <laughs> if this now, if this were a film, you would be saying that it carries references to those other two films, and I'm interested to see. Well, uh, okay. You I'm would interested say I'm to see how the director of Dishonored is going to do this. Yes, I'm interested to see how Arcane is going to do System Shock, which. Yes, I'm super I, interested in that. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't like I, another thing. Another great thing about a lot of bad prey reviews is that they. Uh, for some reason, always say like a <laughs> like a science fiction Bioshock set in a space station. Ah! Yeah, I'd play that. Sounds good. <laughs> ah! <laughs> um, if only there were another game. We could save a few words here. If only there were another science fiction Bioshock set in a space station. Um, if only. <laughs> No one's ever played such a game, though. There's, there's no <laughs> game called System Shock 2. A game with a lot of systems. No. Um, but, but okay, so if this were movies, Arkane would be a very well-known director. Because Arkane's style is so unique. Um, if you played Heroes of Might and Magic or um, their other game or, Dishon or the Dishonored series, they're very good at uh, something that a lot of developers are too afraid to do. Which is, rather than keeping you on rails and in this very tight, tightly scripted uh, environment, they create a ton of systems, abilities that you can use, uh, very complex AI, uh, physics systems, and then all of these things can interact with each other in such a way that you have tons of possibilities, and it's almost impossible for the, for the director and the developer to, to, to really understand everything that you'll be able to do. Right. Um, yes. And that's the that is part of the Looking Glass formula. Um, if you think about Thief Two, there was a lot of systems in that game. Uh, Deus Ex, since the entire premise was like that, you'll be able to approach things from different angles. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, absolutely. In a very real sense, not just three, not like not like the new Deus Ex, where it's like three angles, like lethal, non-lethal, and sneak past entirely, and all of those things are scripted for you perfectly. Uh, you can compare that to Prey. In Prey, an option might include uh, finding an air vent that is completely hidden, that is not just a vent with a fixed path. It's an entire network of rafters. Getting into the room with the terminal that you need to hack, and while monsters are crawling around underneath you, using a Nerf dart gun to try and hit <laughs> buttons on the screen from the rafters without alerting the monsters. Right. Like Those are the types of extra paths we're talking about. Um, we're talking about like leaving behind a clone of yourself to distract the monsters so that you can get into somewhere. Things that feel hacky and buggy and feel like you're not supposed to be doing them, so you feel like you've cheated your way through the entire game pretty much no matter how you play it. Absolutely, the, yeah. It feels it feels like you're getting away yeah. with something. Yeah, that's the arcane formula, right? Yep. So, Same with Dishonored. Dishonored felt that way constantly. Yes, exactly. So, So the way that you look at a game 
that's like this is kind of like System Shock. It looks like Bioshock. It takes place on a space station, kind of like Dead Space. How is this genre that we have in in video games, this kind of System Shock, Dead Space genre, mm. how is Arcane going to approach that? The same way you would say, how is Christopher Nolan going to approach the World War II movie? Um, right. Shit, did, did Dunkirk actually... Is that actually World War II? I've said World uh, War II like five times. <laughs> I, I don't want to say now. Um, I think Dunkirk is World War One. Oh my god. Is it? I look, um, I look so stupid. No, no, no. no. <laughs> you don't. No, um, no, it's World War Two. It's World War Two. Yeah, it's Excuse World War Two. May nineteen forty. There we go. You made me worry. <laughs> yeah, that's why. I, see, I'm gonna Refill, edit that out. Re- reshoot the entire thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just, um, I'll just edit in World War One every time. Yeah, it's like game. a like a text to speech World War One. <laughs> um, but no, right? World War Two with Dunkirk. Yes. Yeah. So. So if you if you looked at Prey from that perspective, where you said. These things have already been done. Now, how is Arcane going to approach them using their super unique style? Right. Um, <laughs> like, yeah, no, I, it's it's interesting because like there's there's a way that there's a way that video games have totally leaned into the auteur theory in this way, and especially in reviews where like people want to know what Kojima is going to do or want to know what um, uh, I'm trying to think of other auteurs. Um, I mean, even like Cliff Blazinski or, or something like that. Like, it's not just uh, Shigeru Miyamoto anymore. It's it's all these people that like you know Yoko Taro or um, Hidetaka Miyazaki. There you I go. Can't, yeah, can't think of any Americans. Uh, um, any that still make games. Yeah, no, not a lot. But but it's fine. Um, so like the, these these folks. It bothers me personal, but <laughs> well, you can be that American. There you go. <laughs> Um, but but no, I yeah. mean like there there are these auteurs, right? That like people are interested in in in, in learning about, um, or interested in playing the games of, or interested because they sort of are these directors. But at the same at the same moment, in some ways, studios because these games are so like time intensive to make and like skill intensive and money intensive, studios have also become that, and people are so unwilling to lean into that. Like yes, you could talk about the next. Um, uh, you could talk about the next Kojima game, but no one's going to talk about the next Arcane game or the next Valve game or something like that. Maybe the next Valve game because they're a little weird, but you get the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, normally, the last paragraphs of these is <laughs> where, where pretty really gets, bad. Yeah, it's it's where yeah. it really gets nuclear. The nuclear takes. Um, Read that last paragraph, and then we'll then we'll switch over to the the more the less nuclear but perhaps better uh, closer uh, Vice article. Okay. Um, <clears throat> this is Wired saying imagine 40 plus hours of thinking oh it's like that bit in Dead Space or Dishonored would have done this stealth bit better or didn't I have this power in Bioshock imagine thinking that while simultaneously being battered by the mercurial space thing that used to be a desk lamp and then being attacked by Talos 1's gun turrets when you dare to use the game's most fun abilities it's boring and it's frustrating Prey is neither more nor less than the sum of its parts it's simply all of those parts thrown together to be easily picked apart by the player while they quietly swear under their breath. <laughs> and here is wow. PC Gamer saying, it's a little bit like Bioshock, albeit with science instead of Randian sociology. Oh. Good. System Shock 2 is a game! You can buy it on Steam! Buy it! <laughs> System Shock 2 is a real game! It's so uh, weird that people aren't playing System Shock 2. That's like such a such a... Yeah, it's such a 
It's such a popular game. It's so important. Oh well. Um, I mean, a lot of a lot of this is what a lot of the, these criticisms are what made me like Prey so much was that right. was that there's all of these possibilities from so borrowed from so many genres, and they're all interacting with each other so so uh, so randomly that when you when you do something unexpected and it's always expected for you to have done that every time you climb up a wall there's something up there every time you like use a glitch to or what feels like a glitch to get in somewhere it's it's actually expected for you to do that like using a like being a cup to get through a small space yeah <laughs> that feels like you're so not fun. supposed to be able to do that no not but at it's, all it, but it's expected for you to do it and it's encouraged um so so what i'm what i'm kind of saying is that these kinds of reviews happen and you can spot this i'm not going to go through this with other games uh for one, because Prey is the only one that I know that both of us have played. <laughs> um, but the reason why these comparisons are treated so harshly, like the fact that you can compare it to Bioshock or you can compare it to another game, the reason why that's not just a cool thing and why it's a it's, it's, it's a problem in the industry, or the reason why it's treated like it's a problem for consumers, is the fear of games going stagnant. Right. Which is something that... Uh, you know, when they made Apocalypse Now, they weren't worried about seeming too much like Heart of Darkness. It's you need to be able to derive works once you reach a certain point, um, because you're not going to be able to come up with a brand new game every single time. And it's better to get to see Arcane's take on System Shock, which came out a long time ago, and you know the Shock games aren't. This is I, I don't want to I don't want to get it. This is better than any shock game that's come out. Well, yeah, and 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 you know it's it's funny actually. The when I had uh, John Bernhard on Jonathan Bernhard on to talk about this, his his take initially immediately what he said he's like this isn't a stealth game, it's a shock game. That like, was his was his immediate take, and it's true. Um, it I, I find it really interesting like that you're you're saying it this way because of course you know it comes from two different things the one is this is this fear that you're gonna as you mentioned that we're gonna hit some sort of wall and no one's gonna play video games anymore like we're gonna end we're gonna stagnate so much that there's gonna be no more video games um and then which is a, a kind of a silly fear because of course people are buying video games at an incredibly high rate um and then the other concern is that um or the other thing that's going on here is that you look at something like system shock 2 and people are unwilling to say, like, this is a complicated work with a lot going on and we need to return to it. Whereas you'd be totally fine saying something like, oh, Heart of Darkness is a really complicated text in, in any number of historical, textual, whatever ways. Like Joseph Conrad, you know, wrote a good novel. Let's kind of go look at it again and again and again. People are fine saying that. Not so much about video games. And I, I find that, like, the the Vice article or the, the Waypoint article that you um you linked me to uh, Cam Kunzelman's uh, or Cameron. I don't know what they like to be called, so I probably shouldn't give them a nickname. Uh, Cameron <laughs> Kunzelman's uh, video games promise the future, but they never deliver it. I mean, even the the basic idea, right, of this, you know, this it's about this game um, uh, that actually looks really cool called uh, Ravenfield, which is sort of like a Minecrafty lo-fi battlefield game. Um, it looks neat, uh, but he basically says like, you know, it's a drag because as he says in his final paragraph, the aping, aping your good, good tip. 
It's another moment when the future of gaming is right around the corner. This movement just passed and it's coming down the pipe again in five minutes. It seems like video games always feel like they're on the way to some win and things will be the best they can be there and all the promises will finally be made good on. And then another game with more promises pulls up in front of me. And I think like, I think like the point is, and he says like, you know, the, he says like he's close. He feels close playing this game. He feels like, yeah, this game's going to finally do it. And then it doesn't. And that's what's upsetting about it. And ultimately you want to say like, no, the the last paragraph there, what you're focusing on, what you're missing is that like, that's the wrong way to think about it. Like, don't try and expect the future. Just like that's, that's a very, that's a very, I don't know, 10 years ago way of thinking about video games right now. It's just like, is the game good? Like, that's like, that seems to be the thing that people just are so unwilling to ask. I feel like there is, (laughs) there is a, a bit of a lack of respect, uh, especially outside of the indie scene for games that we should be still learning from um half-life for one the entire like looking glass catalog and uh half-life to a lesser extent the way that physics was uh, uh, treated it was respected as a system um it's a free system right it's a switch that you turn on and just because your game has a physics engine you now get to have a different experience for every player. Some of them right. might sh- have a, a barrel get shot and it falls in their path and gives them cover. You know, things <laughs> like there's so much that can happen just with system. And then you can interact that with your other systems, um, which creates infinite possibilities. Right. If you're in, say, Half-Life 2, for instance, you have a physics engine. That's a free system. You have AI. That's another, that's another system that you're going to have to have no matter what. Why not let them interact? Why not let zombies throw barrels at you? <laughs> right. Yeah, and, and the interaction of systems produces so much. Like, I was one of the... This actually, what we're recording, which unfortunately dates the podcast, but that's fine. I just put out a, a, an episode with um, uh, Twitter user Illy Boshin, uh, Andrew, who mentioned, like, he was talking about uh, open-world games, and he said, like, one of the things he really loves to do in Grand Theft Auto games is drive around with traffic obeying all laws just kind of existing in the city as a law-abiding <laughs> citizen which like i think people i mean that's like that was my experience with la noir um i enjoyed la noir sleeping dogs like, i did that yeah 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 right sleeping dogs i did a little bit of that too you just like exist in the world like, I'm, I'm, I'm obeying the laws um and it's, it's fun it, there's like a, there's an enjoyment out of it and he said one of the things that happened he he could never get it to repeat it was just this one weird moment where he was he pulled up to this other car at a stoplight pretty late i guess in the game's day night cycle and the other car goes honk but it wasn't the car honking it was someone saying honk um and he never could get it to repeat it was just this really (laughs) weird moment (laughs) but like it there's so much produced when you let games kind of interact with other systems like that like that's that's something that can only interact half-life 2 is a better example but like because there's so much more it's it's so much more on on its face but like there's so much that can happen when you let that freedom kind of yeah. One kind of functional fixedness kind of like trap that I fall into with systems is I'll I always jump to physics-based systems cuz it's what I love so much in Prey, like the mm. glue gun for instance or the the huntress so you can bounce arrows to hit things. I, I I really get obsessed with physics-based systems, but there's a really simple one that I really like about Halo, right? Mm-hmm. Which is that the vehicle system is completely exposed to the AI system. So a grunt yeah. can get into an alien vehicle not cuz it was <laughs> scripted to do that. But because right. it found it found the nearest vehicle and that happened to be an alien vehicle. Um, things like that, where like 
that's just one example of what I was talking about, which is that we we lose respect for the older games mm-hmm. and feel like we have to move on from them. And currently, that means making a modern cover-based shooter where you don't have a lot of entropy, you don't have a lot of systems, you're moving through scripted sort of, uh, I don't want to, like, these are great games, and that's why I'm referencing them, so I don't, so I'm not trashing bad games, but um, The Last of Us, or mm-hmm. uh, even the entire Uncharted series, those are very heavily scripted games. Um, yes, yeah. You can talk about that with a friend, and you will have experienced both pretty much the exact same thing. Yeah, um, you cannot compare that to a game like Thief, um, or you know now even Doom. That game had a lot, the the new Doom. It had a lot of systems, and I think people are starting to look back at those older games with a lot more respect. Now that we are sort of reaching that point where we've stagnated, I think a lot of genres that we thought were, I think a lot of the time we mistake a genre like the the cover based FPS as a progression, as a, 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 a sort of immutable thing. And it's it's not moving forward. It's just a genre. So it's not the way that all video games are moving. And when you take it, and it's, it's a complete breath of fresh air to play a game like the new Doom that completely throws away almost everything that we've done in the last 10 years and takes us back to what we were doing in, in pretty much the 90s. <laughs> oh, yeah, um, no, it's it's very, very... Uh, I loved the new Doom. I I absolutely loved the new Doom, and that was one of the reasons for it. Yeah, you're... It's It's been so long since I've run at somebody. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and, like, yeah, it's, it's, it's so interesting the way you're saying it because, like, I remember... I can remember a lot of, like... I, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure in some... I'm sure I'm closer to the age of more reviewers than developers um and i know that like i can remember some of the experiences looking at old like nintendo power magazines and seeing like okay this thing's coming out and it's going to have this technological advancement this thing's coming out and it did feel very much like a progression up until about ps3 and xbox 360 and yeah like ps4 and xbox one are a little better like there's advancements um, but it's not so much that like, you know, Persona 5 came out on PlayStation 3 too. Like it's not, it's the, the sort of like cross play of both is, is still there. Like the other systems ha- kind of hanging around and all of a sudden you get the sort of stoppage where it's like, okay, we're not getting any better. Um, but for a while there, it really was like every single month you'd be like, Oh, this next thing's coming out and it's going to be huge. And sometimes it was, and sometimes it wasn't. And when it wasn't, you knew it was a marked failure, and it would have was, it was a success. But that's not really relevant anymore. Yeah, now I feel like if if we stop thinking about it as as moving forward and start thinking of it as expanding outward, mm. right? Um, Dark Souls. What is? What was the step before Dark Souls? Uh, I don't know. Uh, probably the N sixty four Zeldas. Yeah. That's actually uh that's a good point. Um <laughs> that would be but, that's my best guess, yeah. Yeah, but but if you if you look at it as, as sort of a cloud, like Dark Souls mm-hmm. is just a part of that cloud now. It's not a step on the ladder. Right, exactly. Um, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, th- for instance, I think I think FPS gamers have been a little bit uh, old school FPS gamers uh have been a little bit stifled. I know that I feel that way by the character controllers of every FPS game that comes out, where jumping is an animation, where your head is bobbing, 
running is a toggle um, and running is off by default, why would it ever be that? Well, this is a game where you regenerate health by hiding. There's a new Quake coming out where you can bunny hop. When was the last game that came out where bunny hop was not a bug? <laughs> right, exactly. Um, like, you can force it to happen in Counter-Strike uh, Global Offensive. You can m- make it happen, but your default running speed is 255 and with, with your knife out, and then mm-hmm. you can get it up to 300 by bunny hopping. In Quake, <laughs> if Quake were the equivalent there, you'd be at like 1,200, the new Quake. <laughs> and that's such a core part of Quake, but it's something yeah, that speed. has to be there. Well, that was the same thing in Doom 4. It just, like, it was fast. Yeah, yeah. It's an incredibly fast game. Um, Bunny hopping specifically, though, was something that a lot of people got really good at as FPSs were starting out. And it was Mm -hmm. an unattended thing. It's kind of... I guess it'd be compared to, like, centrifugal force and then combine that with the fact that you don't slow down if you jump as soon as you land. Right. Um, You can force yourself to speed up using kind of just a bug or a weird anomaly in how the math behind moving a character around works. Yeah. Um, a lot of people got really good at that during uh, Counter-Strike Source, um, the early uh, Quake games. Like, th- that was a skill, and it was a core part of playing an FPS game online. And now the competitive F- FPS games, you have uh, the new Halo, Counter-Strike Global Offensive kind of has it, um, and... Uh, like the Call of Duty games, none of those have that. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to the degree that they had it before. So it's just a skill that was gone. And a lot of people regret having it there because as a result, we have a lot more slow-paced, tactical FPS games and, and none of the twitchy, sort of uh, very very frantic ones that we had uh, in, in the 90s and early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And now there's a Quake coming out that has that again because we have a respect for the ways of the past. We didn't learn to stop having bunny hopping we just stop doing it of our own volition. It's not right. better. Yeah, that's it. And, and it kind of goes back to something you said at the very beginning of the episode, too, where, like, the 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 point here is, in some ways, like... In some ways, the point is that people who are... Who really, like, cut their teeth on those games, like, found their reason for doing what they're doing in those games are now developing games again. Like, actually, like, they're the ones doing the games. And, like... It's interesting that the stagnancy sort of happened when my generation started. Not that I mean, technically, we're part of the same generation because they're not creative enough to give us different generations. But like, <laughs> when people like closer to my decade plus uh, on you were developing, like, it's interesting that some of the stagnation came there because we were still caught up in that like, you got to get the next thing, got to get the next thing, because we were able to see like, you know, we saw Metal Gear Solid come out, and we saw. Grand Theft Auto 3, we saw Fallout 3, we saw Half-Life 2, and there's always a step forward. It's just so interesting, like, if you give that all to, to people, like, you were born with a lot of the, when you were born, not when you were born, but when you were, like, when you were cognizant of gaming, probably, like, what, around, like, 10, 12? When um, I became a gamer, yeah. Yeah, right. Um, the, 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 all that stuff was kind of done. I mean, a lot of it was. Um, and it's just like it's a moment where like you can kind of look around you and say like yeah i take from all of this which is kind of refreshing in a certain way it 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 speaks to a tradition as opposed to a progression which i find really refreshing yes that's oh wow you've summed up all of my meandering and rambling throughout this no no you 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 got us there you got us there (laughs) with that that line is is absolutely it it's perfect it is not a progression it is a tradition now and we're going to see games looking at that differently uh something that just came to mind uh starcraft is getting a remaster oh really 
yeah, the, it's getting a 4K remaster. Gameplay absolutely untouched. Wow. I can't wait to play that. I can't wait to come back to StarCraft. I, it's been ages. Yeah, and that that flavor of FPS or of RTS, oh, man, that is, that's completely gone. <laughs> yeah, no, it um, is. Now RTS is very focused on, like, you know, large sections of units and big spectacles. But back then it was obviously very small because you could only select a certain number of units at a time. I wanted mm-hmm. to – I realize we've been going for about an hour now. Oh yeah, it's probably we're probably about at we're probably about uh, ready to to start wrapping up. But but you can you can introduce one last thing. That's fine. Um, well, I wanted to talk a little bit about how VR is affected by that futurism because that Please. was what yeah, I was yeah, yeah. Go for it. Go building for it. Yeah, up. That's to. what you came. That's what you came here for. So yeah, I would I would hate to cut that out. Please. Well, it's interesting how much how much ground we've made so far without even getting into VR. Um, <laughs> but the the way that VR is marketed. I mean, when when we started with with vr what were people excited about like do you remember um existing in uh existing in worlds where like you would be immersed i think was like i'm trying to remember what i was excited about when like i played some really bad vr prototype in a dave and buster somewhere or something like that like yeah just like not really losing yourself in the world not having a controller anymore having your body be the controller so what what I <laughs> when I first heard of VR, it was in the context of the so-called waifu era, okay, where sure. okay. in the future you're gonna have a, a a wife from the anime dimension who <laughs> you interact with entirely through a VR headset, um, and eventually if you get a divorce and you know you didn't sign an EAULA, you have to have a. a <laughs> Uh, an appraiser come out and look at every microtransacted thing in your house and uh at, at the end of the day if you you know <laughs> at, at the end of the day you know you get the bad news and and you you play space pirate trainer for like two hours or whatever um anyway that's that's what 2078 or 2117 is going to look like right that's that's going to be our future uh because vr is the future of all gaming and it's the future of everything Right. And it's going to replace PC games. It's going to replace your 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 silly little console games, um, and it's going to be the waifu era. <laughs> um, I love it. I love that idea. It's so it's so deeply deeply uh, misanthropic and backwards. <laughs> <laughs> um, VR was always going to be a toy, and. Right now, what it is is a novelty, and I love that it's a novelty. I'm, I I love making novel things in it. Yeah. But I I also understand that it's only for people that really want it, at least at the moment. And I have no guarantee that it's ever going to be anything else. Most developers look at it that way. They look at it as something they're cautiously optimistic about, but they're happy about the way it is now. And if it grows it's only going to become less indie yeah, right yeah. but i find that the, the the biggest appeal with vr is is with people that don't play any video games um they hmm. pick it up probably the fastest really well i guess that would make sense because you're you're talking about like when you were talking earlier about the idea of like people want a joystick if people aren't used to joysticks why would they want them yes exactly people are disappointed uh by their expectations that they have from traditional gaming Mm-hmm. And they are confused by things that they are used to in traditional gaming. Yeah. Um, 
but a lot of it, there's almost no abstraction in, in VR when you have handheld or in, in what I'm talking about right now is room scale VR with motion controllers. Okay. There's almost no abstraction in that. Uh, if you want to pick something up, you put your hand on it and you pull the trigger and then you can move it around. You can let go of the trigger to throw it. It's very, it's very intuitive. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, where people are used to looking with a mouse, they now look with their head. And I've, when I was demoing, I had to tell people, you can physically turn in your space. <laughs> this game, <laughs> funny. Yeah, this game doesn't all take place in one direction. You can physically turn. And once they understand that, they're very open to it. But the people that I had to tell things like that were not people that were new to VR. People that were new to VR immediately got that. It was people yeah. that were used to looking around with a mouse and people that were used to having a layer of abstraction between themselves and every finger on their hand. Um, of course, yeah, because you're, you're talking about WASD and, uh, and a mouse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I am fine with that. Most of the artists that produce things for VR are fine with that, and the manufacturers are going to take it however it, it goes. Yeah, they're um, pretty flexible. <laughs> yeah, because they're HTC, they're Valve, they're Facebook. They're not. Uh, they just want to make money. Yeah. yeah, they're not super invested in, in in the waifu era. No, they're not. They're not super invested in, in whether or not this particular thing makes them a ton of money. They have a ton of other things going on. Right. Um, in fact, I think this is just my own theory, but I think a lot of this is just a billboard for them. Um, yeah, of course. The people who are very futuristic about VR are, of course traditional gamers that want this new technology to be um, an integrated part of gaming for them. Right. And the... Uh, oh, I'm trying to think of a word that isn't suits. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, investors, let's say. The, yes. The VCs. <laughs> yes. The investors and by extension, the writers and influencers um, are very invested in VR being the future. And that has an effect on the market and the creative aspects of, uh, in the same ways that we were outlining before, Mm -hmm. those expectations of a singular line of progress going through video games is is amplified in VR. because, Because it was marketed as the future. And it's continuing to be marketed as the future, but people are disappointed with the games that we have so far um, largely because they're indie or they're ports uh, just because the market size isn't big enough for a large AAA company to get invested Ubisoft made um, again I'm talking about I'm talking about Oculus and Vive and PSVR right now I'm not talking right. about like Gear VR or any of that um, Ubisoft made a made the Star Trek game that was a AAA VR game that was very successful um, but as far as a, a narrative game with multiple hours of content, we aren't seeing that yet, and it's turning a lot of, of the gamer audience off. Um, and so what this kind of is, for the most part, is a novelty for tech-oriented wealthy people. Or wealthy Very wealthy people. because of how much they, uh, they cost. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not super... It's, it's not super expensive, but it is expensive for somebody to have to... It's, it's expensive for how not needed it is yeah, when you can just buy an Xbox. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's, it's expensive for, for how much work it is and how experimental it is and how early it is um, that only people who that money isn't very much for them or who are super interested in VR 
um, are actually going to be into it. Right. Uh, because you need a good rig and you need uh, the hardware, which uh, on average I think that's about two grand. It's getting cheaper. Um, I, I it's probably you know fifteen hundred. But some of the ways that this futurism shows up in VR is through people finding weird applications for it that sound huge and hmm. uh, generally turn out to be nothing. <laughs> um, sure. One of them is the finance, the financial sector is super, uh, I, don't, I won't say that they're interested, but people are very interested in trying to sell this to them. Um, Why? Because they are a market outside of gaming and the, the, the market of, you know, the, the gamers, we've pretty much tapped them as much as we're going to. Sure. So how, how would finance use it? Ah, that's an excellent question. So, um, <laughs> one okay. So you'll you'll find articles, uh, one of which I am looking for that I have sent to you, uh, that look at it as something that you can use to visualize information in three D. Uh, okay. Which we had ways to do that already that also didn't require you to interrupt your entire workflow by putting a headset on your head. Uh, it's not a super practical thing for businesses right now, but hang on. I'm, I'm just going to look up VR yeah. and go to news. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, anyway, it's, it's being pitched as that, as a, as a solution for for the financial sector. Um, okay. Three reasons why the finance industry needs VR. This is from Upload VR. Um, and it's things like financial tech is taking over. Uh, the connected world needs better virtual communication. Data is being wasted. For a while, this was the this was in the top results for if you looked up just VR and went to news. Um, and of course, this is written by the co-founder of a data visualization company uh, that merges AI, big data, and visual augmented reality to gain insights from big and complex data sets. Uh, so I, in a lot of ways, it's big data is, is the way that, that VR would be used. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. Um, right sort of now, talking like a minority report sort of like uh, visualization there where you get to swish through the stuff or whatever. Yes, yeah. Uh, which is... All right, I, I work in IT. Um I've had to wipe medical records off of computers that are still running Windows ME. People don't want to introduce new shit into their into their <laughs> into their workspace. Yeah, of course. Um, right. And this is something that you have to literally put on your head while you're trying to work. So it's going to be tough. Yeah. So we're the reason why this kind of stuff is is being talked about is because we don't want to keep talking about VR games. Because they aren't producing the cash cows that we need, uh, they aren't. They aren't producing the big investable. It's it's starting to taper off, and you're seeing things like. Uh, <laughs> Do you, have you heard of the expression "empathy machine"? Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, this is a great. There's actually a lot of think pieces about this. My Twitter feed was flooded with them at one point. <laughs> for. The, the idea that VR is going to 
reshape the way that we empathize with other people. Um, which, again, right now is not practical, but I'll, I'll, I'll lend them the, the benefit of the doubt here and say that we're talking about in the future it might be, which, uh, why would you, I don't know. I don't, I don't really even understand the premise. Like, is it just because it would be a better way to tell narratives about how people experience the world or it's so yeah. weird. So there's some examples, uh, that the, the phrase empathy machine actually came from a Ted talk. Uh, mm-hmm. of about, course and that, did. yeah. And that Ted talk was about film. Okay. Um, and that Ted talk okay. was in 2015, which I'll remind you is like 32 years after Koyaanisqatsi. <laughs> um, that unimportant movie. Yeah. So, We've definitely experimented with the idea of a empathy machine in the form of film. And in film, that does make sense because empathy is when you look at somebody and you put yourself in their shoes and you feel for them. Um, in VR, that's actually you standing in their shoes, like physically. Mm-hmm. Um, and... <laughs> It's actually, I, I don't want to say that, I don't want to use the word problematic, uh, but I just, you can. Let's, let, let's go with it. Uh, it's problematic, that's right. Yeah, it, it, is, it is problematic to, to imply that you will understand somebody's uh, plight that lives halfway across the world because you have spent between 1500 and, and, and two grand uh, on... <laughs> getting a, a t- 1080p 90fps depiction of what their world looks like in a world that looks more or less like jazz punk but not as stylish <laughs> and then every time the you know every time whatever event it is uh, one example that I saw was looking for the one that says that empathy is like a currency <laughs> oh, uh, no <laughs> it's a little bit cynical I will say um Oh yeah, empathy is a currency. Uh, this is an article in the space, which is advertising one of these machines. And I'm not saying that these are like a a, a big problem. I don't want to sound like I'm making any grand statements about anything. But yeah, they could be symptomatic. That's okay. Yeah, but I, I do want to say that these are a symptom of a VR industry that is too future is, is too futuristic and is not uh, looking at what the industry actually is because it can only sustain itself and uh, continue to pull in money by claiming that the that VR has so much more to offer than I think that it practically does. So here's a, here's a, here's a nuclear take. Empathy is a currency which can translate into signatures on petitions, financial donations, bodies at protests, changes to policy, how to elicit empathy for others is a challenge that's faced campaigners for years and one that only becomes harder with so many causes and digital distractions competing for our attention. 2D images, film, audio, and words have long been central to this, and now campaigners have a new storytelling tool, virtual reality. Hmm. Um, <laughs> how do you get a middle-class office worker living a comfortable life in London or New York to identify with a child in a refugee, in a refugee camp in Jordan or the man in Aleppo whose house has just been bombed? Or with a Nepalese woman who has lost her entire family in an earthquake. Do you see how? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's that's absurd. It's it's so well. You know what? You know what it is. It's this. It's this. You know, if we want to talk about the the, if we want to bring it back here, sort of towards the end, at, 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 at talking about the the trouble with futurism 
in a classical sense, I mean, it's using, it's all it is, is aestheticizing data. It's aestheticizing this idea that like, if you get the correct data in, into the machine of your brain, you can do anything. Um, which oh, of course was man. disastrous in the, in the, in this last election. Um, and it's disastrous to imagine like, that's not what empathy is. It's not, it's not knowing what someone went through. You have to like, there's some other thing that has to happen there. You have to learn something. You have to be able to talk to people. It's like, yeah, you can't empathize with someone. You might be a sociopath, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. There's a, I mean, if a picture wasn't enough for you or, or a story wasn't enough for you, I mean, how, how, how much should how, they have to try to, to, to win your favor? Like, yeah, before we can just give up and just give the money to uh, to, to someone that can use it. Um, yeah. And, and that, that is a great point. In the same way that when, when the threat uh, when the threat in the oh, this is going to sound really lofty. When the threat in the beginning of the 20th century was fascism and weapons and, and a, a, an industrial machine built around killing um, the dangerous thing was to to fetishize weapons and fetishize warfare. And that's what futurism was doing then, was showing us all of the possibilities for our beautiful weapons. And the effect that that has now, if you want to stray away a little bit from, from how this affects developers and uh, just my niche hobby, and talk about it in a greater political sense, um, data is killing a lot of people it's yes. a and and the it's it's systems that are negligent and are too analytical um in the same way that i use fascism you could say that that the sort of oh god uh that that neoliberalism in this case and it's and it's data-driven sort of wonkish meritocratic uh, why did I say wonkish it's not you can quite say wonkish, that it's okay it's not well it's not quite that it's it's just the over analyzing of problems rather than actually having solutions to them yeah okay um, that makes sense and this is this is pretty textbook that I, I feel like I'm reaching a little bit here no I mean yeah the the point is I, I think like the point is that you're trying to make and, and that I'm following you on is it's not just weapons that are problematic to aestheticize anymore. Like the, the data serves as a weapon, like big data isn't, we treat it as if it's this inert thing when in reality it does have political valences. It does have political uses. And many times those uses are quite destructive. Um, and so to imagine that it's just all fun and games or well and good to use VR to, you know, make me empathize, make me the middle, you know, the middle, upper middle class, you know, manager or whatever, empathize with a Yemeni woman, uh, you know, that's not just disingenuous, it's dangerous. And there is a, a take that I have seen, which is that, uh, say that, say that some, in, in our cyberpunk future, some labor organizers <laughs> have put together a VR simulation of working at Arby's and given it to the CEO of Arby's. Now, the CEO of Arby's can get in there and leave satisfied that he has tackled the problem of working at Arby's now. He feels like he understands what it's like for them because he has experienced a 15-minute simulation of what it's like to operate the fryer and to take the liquid meat and turn it into strands of solid meat. And he's gone through all of this. What he has not done is stand on his feet for eight hours. Right. 
Yeah, there's not a virtualization of actual experience that's possible. Same same thing like if you think about like the the idea of uh, the man whose house was bombed in Aleppo, you know, you don't have to live through that anxiety. You don't have to live through not being able to sleep at night. There's physical and mental tolls that you can't possibly get through. Um, well, th- so here's an example, um, a sort of politicized older example. Uh, there's an art installation called a Tech and Torture Tournament. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, it's 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 old at this point, but uh, I think it was Tekken One even, or Tekken Two, or you know, an older Tekken. Um, but uh, the idea was people would play tech, Tekken against each other, and every time their characters would be hit, they'd get a mild electric shock. Um, and so the whole thing was like them literally inflicting pain on each other, which is why it was called Tekken Torture Tournament. <laughs> um, so basically, you like you hooked yourself up to electrodes and played Tekken. Um, and the point was like that's the closest you can get to empathy in a video game it's it's not like and and even that is just a simulation there's like mental and physical anguish you're never going to feel through that simulation yes um the there's there's another uh thought that comes to mind which is that in the same way that the u.s army can make a video game to try and recruit um people are making a decision off of imperfect information there people can feel like they have been in the army by playing a video game about it um people can feel like they know how to fight because they've played a video game about it and people can in the same way feel like they understand the plight of the refugee because they've played a video game about it and maybe not consciously if you ask them they wouldn't say yes but they will have an idea that they've been there or at least be patting themselves on the back for something that they didn't actually go through and that's the the part that bothers me is Mm -hmm. um is that I don't like them feeling good. <laughs> <laughs> well, that moment of, of pristine honesty is a wonderful <laughs> place, I think, to wrap up. Uh, thanks, man. This is this is really fun. Uh, do, you, do you have anything you feel we left out? We, we really hit a number of notes. Uh, no, we talked about a lot of stuff. A lot of it yeah. was my first time stepping into it, so if I said anything stupid, uh, call it out. I'll cut don't. it out. I won't, I won't call you out. Don't worry. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, for, for people. The audience? Yeah, 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 okay. Call me out you, on it. Don't at me. Don't, don't. Wait, where can they call you out, though? I don't know. In the comments. Or Do you have comments on this site? No, well, I mean, the, it, would Patreon, be my I at, it would be my at then. You, you'd okay. at me at. Yeah. Right, you, could, you can at, at me at Hagelbun, <laughs> and then I will forward the comments to him. Okay. It'll be, it'll be good. <laughs> even though, even though you your can, Twitter, we said yeah. at the top, is dog and hoodie. So. Uh, it's actually actually no. Do at me. My Twitter is at Still Gray. <laughs> Ian, thanks so much for being on. This is wonderful. <laughs> um, well, yeah, man. Um, actually, you know, you should plug before you leave. You should plug uh, your game. Uh, you never actually said the name of your game. Um, it's called The Shaking Death. It's um, it's a VR survival horror game that I'm working on. I basically, um, it's me and my friend. Uh, Austin Schaefer, who does not share any of the opinions that I have stated, unless he explicitly <laughs> says so. Um, and he shares them all. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he is at Schaefer Austin, uh, if you want to follow him. And then our game, our, our, our company is at Iteria Games, I-T-E-R-I-A. Uh, the, the whole premise of the game is basically we're taking some of the survival horror tropes of having a very restrictive character controller and resource management and uh, trying to apply them into VR. And we're hmm. looking at a lot of ways to do that. We're about halfway through development, I like to think. Um, but for now, there's not a lot out about the game. Um, 
I really just wanted to come on here to talk. No, I mean, it's, yeah, I, I wanted you to come on here to talk too, and 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 knowing your background in dev made it all the more interesting. And I really think we had a great talk. I just yeah, want I, you to be able to get your 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 game out there so people will follow it. It, it. it does have a Twitter account, or the the dev uh, the company that we have. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, look up the Shaking Death. Definitely re- re- read up on it. It looks really cool. I actually am pretty excited to see where it goes. Um, all right, thanks. And then yeah. of course, mine is at doggin underscore hoodie. Uh, and obviously I'll post about it there if I finish it because that's my personal Twitter and that's, this game is personal <laughs> to me because I'm one of two people working on it. Thank you so much for having me on, man. This was a great conversation. Yeah, man. Please, please come back anytime. <laughs>